So this evening I want to, in a way, follow up from the experience of the truth mandala uh, by talking about uh, practicing with difficult emotions, difficult thoughts. Really is such a key part of our practice. And I was thinking that uh, there's something very powerful about the direction of our practice in that we come to know our experience more and more and deeply enough, essentially, so we're not scared of experience anymore. We're not scared almost of any possible experience even hard ones. Because if we stay mindful and aware long enough, we'll be with a lot. And we learn, it's really very much what our practice uh, can teach us, we learn how to be skillful with one difficult state after another. Now, our practice isn't just that. If it was just that, uh, there would only be the first two truths. (laughs) First two noble truths. So there is certainly the uh, development of these beautiful capacities of the open heart and of wisdom and of equanimity and mindfulness and so forth. But part of our practice is learning to be more and more skillful with what's challenging. You know, I think that it's ultimately freeing in that sense that we, um, you know, one teacher said, we're not scared of ourselves anymore. That's one way to say it. This is how, uh, there's a poem by Rilke. Let me see where, where did that poem by Rilke go? Here, poem. <laughs> ah, here it is. Okay. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. And so there's a way that we learn more and more to be open. It's been interesting for me in uh, retreats and everyday life. Uh, I think particularly my retreat experience has uh, been such a mix, uh, especially in the first first 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. 
there's been such a, a mix of going into the beautiful states and the unimaginable and the wonderful and going into the hard stuff. And it's so interesting that, some, at least for me, sometimes the retreats that I've done, meaning a week or ten days or sometimes a little longer, um, they almost vary, almost, especially in those uh, initial years, almost like 50-50. Half of them were wondrous, amazing, and half of them were hard. Some, actually, the wondrous and amazing can be hard also. But they were, you know, there were um, experiences where, or retreats where, I remember one retreat, uh, one of my, probably in my first few years, there was a lot of fear. I was watching the uh, way that the self is a construction. And uh, I wanted to construct it the way it wasn't coming out. (laughs) (laughs) And there was a lot of fear that I watched for days on end at different times. And when one does that in practice, an emotion like fear is never the same. You know? There was another retreat uh, where I was angry the whole retreat. Those of you for whom this is your first retreat, uh, again, that, that, was, that wasn't all. And actually, being able to be with present with difficult emotions and really stay with it and learn from them was extremely uh, inspiring, actually. Maybe much like we may have experienced this afternoon where we were able to be with the difficult emotions, but uh, within a support structure, let's say, where they don't um, paralyze us, we don't get stuck in in certain ways. And so I was able to be with anger. And I was actually angry about 18 hours a day for 10 days in a row. Again, I may, my conditioning was to uh, not go into anger too much. So, obviously, it was helpful. <laughs> but it was, it was powerful, you know, to really stay with that anger. And I'll talk about, maybe I'll talk about that retreat later. And there have been retreats where I was with judgments. You know, also retreats with the open heart or just the amazingness of a quiet mind and so forth. So all sorts of things emerge. But, but it's been interesting for me because there have been retreats in which, okay, uh, this week's curriculum is fear. All right, this week's curriculum is anger. All right, this week's curriculum is sadness. All right, this week's curriculum is uh, loving kindness. All right, this week's uh, curriculum is wonder all right, this week's curriculum is compassion, and so forth. All right, this week's curriculum is studying self-image. And I think, again, as we do that more and more, we develop this amazing quality that I'll probably come back to near the end and talk about further called equanimity, which is a sense of balance with whatever might come up because we've seen it enough. We've allowed ourselves to be with it and it doesn't scare us in the same way. It's like there's a children's book, some of you may know this, called The Monster That Grew Small. Why does the monster, how does the monster grow small? 
the monster grows small as you get closer to it and are willing to look at it. That's what happened in this children's book. What's scary uh, as we actually are with it isn't quite what it looked like further away. Whereas bigger, further away, as you get closer to it, it's smaller. Interesting, right? Interesting. So we get to have this quality of balance. It's, uh, I've heard it said it's like, it's like a grandmother who has seen everything, right? And someone comes and says, okay, that's happening. Oh, yeah, I remember another time that happened, you know? And something like that. There's this powerful quality of equanimity, and it only comes by being willing, <clears throat> willing to be with whatever shows up, which is not easy. We need support. We need the group support. We need uh, guidance at times. We need training. We need tools and so forth. But there is that really willingness to be present, you know, and it's, again, so important to have the supportive community, you know, because we can, one of the things that I've certainly seen in my own experience, and maybe you felt it this afternoon, is the way that we can very easily think, I'm the only one who's feeling this, or I'm the only one with this pattern, or... I'm uniquely problematic. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, you know, we, and it's so valuable to share because you know what? Essentially, our conditioning is pretty similar. It's kind of a conceit of self to think we're uniquely problematic. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think of a line that I heard from uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. What with all his problems, he had, had interesting insights. And he said, he said once, it was kind of in this vein, he said, timidity is such an ego trip. <laughs> you get the reversal, right? You know, it's like, uh, it's very interesting. Right? So, um, another poem by uh, Rumi. I think I may be offering Islamic poems tonight, some. So this is Rumi. Some of you know this, I'm sure. It's The Guest House, very wonderful poem about being open to whatever shows up. Okay. The most popular poet in America is Islamic. (laughs) Go figure. (laughs) Okay. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. That guest may be clearing you out for some new delight. (laughs) The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So how to work with difficult emotions and thoughts? I want to offer both some general perspectives and some very down-to-earth practical uh, tips, as it were, or suggestions. So I think it's helpful to um, 
consider several different ways that we can uh, work with uh, difficult emotions or thoughts in an inner way. We've seen some ways that we can work with them in a group context and we can imagine something similar maybe with um, a friend or a partner or a family perhaps. You know, can you imagine if much of the U.S. or the world did practices like what we did this afternoon? You know, I, I think that I would like to do them more often than I do. I'd like to do that once a month. It's kind of general cleansing, you know, and helping to get unstuck. You know, just like that organization I talked about. After we did that practice, things moved. I would say the ice was broken. It was still difficult. Needed a lot of follow-up, but things things got moving. So it's helpful to look at a few ways to work with difficult uh, emotions and thoughts. And I'll talk about them in a few categories. Um, most of them inner, but I think I want to also bring in uh, one, one way, uh, related way of practicing interpersonally. And all of these, in a way, could be applied to interpersonal or community context. So the first is... Uh, what we might call the area of antidotes. The second is uh, ways of being mindful. And that will include also ways of inquiring, ways of going more deeply. And also related to that, the uh, third aspect is really bringing in the dimension of wisdom. So I want to talk about really those three and I'll include under mindfulness uh, also inquiry. I used to think of them as four and include inquiry, and I, my acronym was MIWA, like, kind of like the Miwok Native Peoples, M-I-W-A, Mindfulness, Inquiry, Wisdom, and Antidotes. You know, so you know, if you have having a difficult emotion or thought, just take out your MIWA toolkit <laughs> and say, okay, which of those four should I, should I use? Okay, and so this is, again, this is, uh, again, going back to the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva is very, very skillful with all the difficult thoughts and emotions, both for oneself and other. But the starting point is being able to experience these more and more oneself, not be so scared and be, be you know, not go, not go looking for trouble, as it were, but to, when things are there, to be willing to um, uh, be with them, work with them, face them, and so forth. Okay, so one starting point is what I'm calling antidote, which is that if we're having, uh, if we're in the midst of difficult emotions and thoughts, maybe if we can be balanced with them, we can employ the tools of mindfulness and inquiry and wisdom, which are great. And we can learn, we can be with them and so forth. If we are not in balance, if we can't really stay with what's happening, particularly difficult emotions, uh, then it's really important to uh, come back to balance, basically. If we're out of balance, the first, uh, really the first step would be do that which helps us to come back to balance when they're difficult emotions. You know? And we've, we've covered some of those. You know, we, that we, we've mentioned how when... Uh, some of the practices like metta or compassion or some uh, way of accessing a, a beautiful state, when that gets strong, we can apply those as antidotes. You know, and some of you know 
that the original instructions of the Buddha on metta were reportedly as an antidote to fear. You know, that the, the story is that the uh, uh, Buddha sent out some of the uh, monks out into the forest and they uh, were in this forest and in, in that belief system there were tree spirits and the tree spirits thought that the uh, monks and the monks would be good visitors but apparently they overstayed their welcome and the tree spirits said you know, they've been here a long time you know I'm not sure we want them and so they decided to scare them which they had the capacity of doing through uh, creating really horrible images and particularly really really bad smells which they did. And the monks were basically, uh, to use a Buddhist technical term, they were freaked out. (laughs) They went running back to the Buddha and said, what should we do? And he says, I have just the tool for you. And he gave them metta. And he gave them metta, uh, the loving kindness practice. And they went back and the tree spirits tried to scare them and they weren't scared in the same way. Kind of something they had some connection to themselves that was um, um, stronger in some way than the fear, you know. And, and, and eventually the tree spirits uh, said, okay, well, act, you know, this metta is actually pretty good, <coughs> better than what, how they were before, <laughs> you know, and they actually became friends and uh, protectors. So... Um, so metta is a very powerful antidote, but we want to find what might help us with a, with a difficult uh, uh, emotion or thought. So in everyday life, it might be to talk with a friend. It might be to uh, do something physical. You know, for many of us, the difficult emotions are very connected with our bodies. You know, and we get, you know, our nervous system gets startled or gets affected, and doing something physical, really, really crucial. I don't, I'm probably saying things that are pretty obvious, right? But actually having a sense of, I'm, I'm having a difficult time with this emotion, I want to come back to balance, what should I do? To have a, a sense of, okay, I have the potential of something like uh, metta, I can, uh, I can, do something physical that, that works to, to ground the body, to stabilize the body. If the nervous system is, is a little out of whack, you know, and practices like yoga or qigong are wonderful in terms of soothing the system, particularly when they work with the energetic body, like practices like qigong or yoga with the pranayama, where, where there's working with the energy system. This can be very, very, um, <clears throat> very, very helpful. We could, we could be with beauty. You know, uh, I remember after 9-11, one person who I, whose work I respect a lot, Michael Mead, he said that the antidote to fear is beauty and that one should actually be with beauty when one is afraid. It's really similar to metta, really. Metta is a, um, really a bringing in up a beauty state. So again, it could be to do all sorts of things. Some of us write, talk with friends, do all these things. So to have a sense of how to come back to balance. Of course, we need the mindfulness to know that we're out of balance. We have to have that mindfulness. That's hard sometimes, right? Because sometimes when we're stuck, we don't know we're stuck. So that 
So that's why the mindfulness has to be strong to let us know that we're uh, stuck. We don't have to be able to be mindful of a difficult state for a long time, but we have to have enough uh, sense to know I am stuck, May I, can I get out of this? I'm stuck, I can't, mindfulness, I can't really be mindful, it's too much. Apply an antidote, very, very crucial. So it's very, very important to have that be. It's like, if we can't really be just easily mindful, that's emergency response, right? To shift the energy, uh, apply an antidote. If we can be mindful with a difficult emotion, there is the potential for tremendous learning. You know, we can actually um, investigate the emotion, and much like the experiences that I was mentioning that I had, we can, in a way, um, come to know this variety of difficult states. I talked some, you know, a few days ago about the judgmental mind. That's certainly one kind of difficult state. You know, I talked about ways of working with it, including having an antidote or any of the difficult emotions that were there in the truth mandala circle when they come. When we actually can be with the emotions mindfully, we come to know their nature. We also are not scared by them. You know, if we've, if we've had some time when we've actually hung out with anger, hung out with fear, hung out with sadness, you know, hung out with grief, and so forth, hung out with despair, and really studied it. It's quite, they're quite interesting. You know, and we may have never done that. And so that's something which we can do on the cushion. Sometimes we need support. It's one of the glories of retreats, particularly silent retreats, that we can actually be with these uh, emotions or difficult thoughts like the judgmental mind for sustained periods of time. And of course we get lost, but we keep coming back. So a wonderful uh, tool for being mindful of difficult emotions and thoughts is uh, this technique that some of you know, which is called RAIN. How many of you know the RAIN technique for working with uh, difficult emotions and thoughts? It's actually working with any emotions and thoughts. The RAIN stands, the R stands for recognition. The A stands for acceptance or acknowledgement. The I stands for inquiry. And the N stands for non-identification, or could be not taking it personally. And this is, this is, this, this is guidance for mindfulness. This was developed by uh, Michelle McDonald Smith, I think quite a while ago, uh, I think maybe 20 years ago, maybe longer. What was the fourth? Uh, non-identification, it's N, non-identification or not taking it personally. So I want to talk a little bit about each of those. What? Can you say them all? Yeah, I'll say them all, and then I'll go through them one by one. Uh, RAIN, R-A-I-N. <laughs> that, that wasn't necessary. <laughs> okay. Uh, recognition, uh, acceptance or acknowledgement. People, some people use different uh, words. Uh, inquiry for the I, and N, non-identification or not taking it personally. So the recognition is really knowing that something is there. 
It's the mindful quality of just identifying, yes, this is present. And really that's such a fundamental starting point to know because again, when we're, uh, we might say, identified with anger or submerged in the anger or stuck in the anger, we don't know we're angry. We're not mindful. And so it's that mindfulness which lets us know I'm angry. On the level of the brain, it goes something like this. The old neural pattern, let's say connected with my anger, is just repeating itself. You know, the neural pathways are familiar. There's a familiar groove. There's been some stimulus and the neural pathways have been activated. They are familiar. Uh, they lead from stimulus to reaction and they're continuing to happen. Within that old habitual pattern, there's no mindfulness. When we're mindful, we're actually introducing a new neural pathway, which is the basis for transformation. You know, on the level, so the work on the brain is quite interesting because it can make some sense out of what we're doing. That when we're mindful, it's almost like we have uh, two parallel neural pathways. Mindfulness is a new neural pathway. It also means that the old neural pathway is no longer the only game in town. It's no longer the only thing happening. Meaning, even if it's really strong, it's 90% strong, not 100%. Even if the mindfulness feels weak, even if there is mindfulness for five seconds and then we lose it, right? It's still there. There's something else happening. Eventually, the mindfulness can get really strong and it's like a new, a new kind of pathway and a new, really a new experience of the anger. And the old pathway doesn't so much uh, uh, go away, but it becomes uh, less prominent. And in, in a sense, in the total picture of the mind, it gets weakened. That's really how learning occurs. And so we first need to recognize is that moment of mindfulness in which we recognize. Very, very significant. And so sometimes, if we're having a difficult emotion, and all we're doing is knowing that I'm angry, and we're still 95% caught in it, we have to remember that that 5% is really significant. That that moment of mindfulness, even if it's not particularly changing what's happening, is really, really significant makes a huge difference because you can see it. It more or less takes away the monopoly of the habitual pattern. Still may be prominent, but it, there's, there's room. There's, there's access. The A has to do with accepting, or we might say acknowledging, meaning that we, in a way, uh, open to the possibility of being with this emotion or this difficult thought. We uh, essentially say, this is workable. There's some way that we're not fighting it anymore. We're not saying, I want to get rid of anger. We start to be able to say, yes, this is happening. I might want something different, but this is happening now. And I can be with it. I can work with it even if it's hard, even if I'm lost some of the time, there's some way that there's uh, workability. There's some way that there's attention. And we can also invoke 
that quality of uh, having some compassion for ourselves as we're doing that. You know, there's a difficult state. You know, uh, my friend and co-teacher and mentor, former mentor, Sylvia Borstein, when she's having a difficult experience, she often does an inner monologue. Quite cute. You know, it goes something like this. She says, oh dear, Sylvia, you're having a difficult experience, aren't you? Yes, help. (laughs) (laughs) What should I do? I don't know, I don't know, help. Okay, now you're a meditation teacher, remember. (laughs) Remember that you have some tools. Oh yes, thank you. (laughs) You know, you can... You can uh, just be mindful, okay, just breathe a little bit. Oh, yes, that's better. And uh, yes, okay, and it's, it's actually not as bad as you might have thought initially. It's workable. Yes, you're right, okay. So I just relax my body. Oh, yes, the startle response is diminishing some. Yes, thank you. And, and let's, just, let's just be with it, you know. And if I, can be, if I can't be with it, we always have metta, but maybe I can be with it. So there's a way we can talk to ourselves like that. We can do an internal uh, monologue, and uh, be like a cheerleader or whatever we want to call it. You know, someone like a, um, you know, like an inner, our own inner mentor, right? Our own inner teacher. We summon our inner energy. And we'll pro- we probably do some exercises tomorrow. There, it actually is quite beautiful to be able to invoke one's inner wisdom. It's really something. And uh, many of us probably do something like that. I know... Um, I had the experience, again, in my first years of practice of kind of touching a deeper intuition of wisdom. And I remember the precise moment when this happened. I, I probably had some <clears throat> intuition and, and wisdom. I certainly did prior to that, but there was something that got uh, born. You know, I was actually doing walking meditation. It was in... Uh, it was in, in, at uh, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie. You know, it was, at a, it was the center a few years after it was built, or not built, but bought. How many of you have been there? Insight Meditation Society. And in uh, Barrie, Massachusetts. And it's uh, sort of the sister center, so to speak, of uh, Spirit Rock. And I would go there, uh, and I was doing walking meditation right near where they had a, like a bowling alley. And it was kind of like, it was an old monastery and the, the brothers really liked to bowl. And it was, still, <laughs> it was still there when we were doing retreats there. So to go to a Dharma talk, you'd have to walk through the bowling alley. It was kind of, <laughs> kind of cute. So there I was doing walking meditation right next to the bowling alley. And, you know, uh, I was, uh, I think I was in my 20s at that point. And... Um, I felt uh, fear in relation to some people that were next to me. And I said, what is that about? You know, and I said, I'm f- afraid. And there was something that got activated where I just, asked, I just stopped walking and I said, why am I afraid? And it was just for myself. And I got an honest I got a response back from something that was, like, that was deep that I didn't really know before. That was like my wisdom voice, like a deeper wisdom. It's like what the Quakers call the still small voice. And it said, you're afraid of their power, which was really interesting. You know? But 
um, you know, the, the content was interesting in itself, but what was way more interesting to me was the fact that I could somehow access something that would tell me the truth, you know, that would give a wise response. You know, and I, it's, um, some, some of us call that intuition, or we could call it the wise voice or the wise part of ourself. It's wonderful in all of this to be able to access that and to, and to call upon it at difficult moments. And I think it gets uh, activated very naturally as our mind gets more quiet. And it's tremendously uh, valuable and, and beautiful, and it gets stronger. And it's occasionally diluted. You have to, <laughs> you have to acknowledge that. You know, when this happened, for that retreat, I just started, I just started uh, really getting into, okay, yes, what's, what's the truth here? And you know, what's the future of my family, and I started getting into intuition. <laughs> it definitely got a little inflated. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting. So you have to be a little careful not to get too carried away. Keep your discriminating wisdom. But, but there's something very beautiful, because it was just for myself. I called it my no-bullshit voice, you know, and really crucial. So there's the recognition, there's the acknowledgement, and sometimes we can use that still small voice to be helpful, to help us um, know what's happening. The I is for inquiry. And this is really the studying of the experience, the looking at the experience, the being with the experience, to be with fear, her anger, her sadness, her grief. When we can be balanced and we study it, we let it be there and we just explore it without trying to make it go away. That's why it's really important to distinguish between when we need to use the antidote and when we're being mindful. Mindfulness is not about making this go away. And we have to really watch out for our subtle motivation. (laughs) I'll just use mindfulness and this will make all my difficult emotions go away. Has anyone ever had that thought? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm I'm joking because we all have, I think. We all have, we want to use, okay, if I'm really... You know, I actually thought this the first few years of practice. I thought, definitely within five years, I'll have no difficult experiences. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't think the advertising for meditation necessarily prompted that. I think that was my own wishful thinking. But it's quite common, isn't it? You know, it's quite common to think that. So we inquire. We have to be, be careful whether we're, whether we're being mindful. Okay, if I'm just mindful for 10 minutes, the sphere will go away, Right. Uh, we have to really be open to it being there. And so that's radical in a way. We have to be present. We have to uh, be with it. You know? um, and we study it. And we, you, we, you know, some beautiful tools for doing that. One is sort of changing channels. One practice to do with mindfulness, let's say with anger, is you keep changing the channels. Okay, what's it like in the body? You hang out with the body. You study it. What's it like in the mind? What are the stories being told? What's the mind doing? You can study it. What's it like? What's the emotional energy like? And so forth. And it can be helpful if something is around for a long time to actually take some notes. You know, that retreat where I was angry for 10 days, I was working with Jack Cornfield. He was my teacher with whom I was working. And uh, I won't so much go into the content of the anger, 
but just to say that um, he gave me a technique to use, which we had, which he had got from a Burmese teacher named Upandita, uh, who was a st- student of Mahasi Sayada, who's one of the great teachers of the 20th century, and, and many of our uh, mindfulness practices come from that tradition. The labeling, you know, particularly, that comes from uh, the work of Mahasi Sayada. And so uh, Upandita had given this technique of um, uh, taking just very minimal notes after each sitting. And Jack had me study the anger and take notes uh, after each sitting or walking. Just a few lines, you know, not so, you know, just, just very descriptive. Not, you know, not speculative, just very descriptive. And so I watched the anger, you know, and I, was, I really inquired, you know, it was like, what's there? What's happening? I watched it. I tracked it. <coughs> he also gave me a particular, Jack gave me really good guidance. He said, watch how the anger changes. So this is really important with difficult thoughts and emotions. We really want to be interested in how they arise and pass. This is actually part of wisdom practice would be to watch for the arising and passing. Eventually, we want to really study our patterns, study what is the stimulus for uh, the emotion arising, and, what, and when it passes away, does it go to something else? So I found when I looked at the anger, I would check in with the body, and sometimes the anger was, I was really hot. You know? It was really kind of burning. You know, like, like I, we, sometimes anger is likened to fire. Sometimes I, I felt nausea. Sometimes my body felt like lead and so forth. So I really would be with the body and just be with it and hang out and notice it. I would watch the the thoughts, you know. I would watch where the thoughts went and watch how they changed. And sometimes uh, the anger was really interesting. The anger would have a lot of different contents. One thing I learned is that anger is actually uh, not a unified phenomenon. There are a lot of kinds of anger. Sometimes my anger was really petty, very self-centered. Sometimes it was, um, uh, sometimes it was uh, connected. Sometimes when I was with it, it would lead to sadness. A lot of psychologists say that anger is a kind of derivative emotion that can lead, that actually covers over sadness or hurt or something. So sometimes I would notice sadness and I'd be sad about you know, I would actually notice that the anger was a cover for sadness, and I would be with the sadness. I would move to sadness. Sometimes, you know, the, uh, maybe I, I will say the content. Of the, on that particular retreat, I was really angry at the teachers. I was angry at them. I had just moved from being in Kentucky and Ohio for, for seven years, where I had lived, and I had been very interested in how do we make, you know, the Dharma... I don't know, I didn't use these words, but like all-American or something like that. Um, never used those words, but that's what just came to mind. <laughs> uh, but I was interested in daily life practice and how to make it real given the kind of lives we had. And I went to this retreat. I'd gone to the same kind of retreat 15 times in the past. And the retreat was really uh, not really dealing with daily life. And I thought it was treating us like we were monks and nuns. And we weren't monks and nuns. So I got really angry at that. Interesting, because I'd been at these kind of retreats for a long time. I was really interested in how can this practice serve who we are. And I talked with Jack, and he was really 
sympathetic to those, those interests, but he said, okay, you can either go home or study your anger. <laughs> so I, I, I decided to stay. It was um, quite worthwhile. Um, but, and so sometimes, you know, the, when I would stay with the anger, the sadness would be, oh, I don't feel like my voice is being heard. And, it would, and then sometimes it would go into a more general sense of feeling maybe more isolated or my voice isn't being heard or how can it be heard and so forth. And I would stay with the sadness sometimes and the sadness would go sometimes uh, into love. It's really interesting that I could find that love was in many ways driving the anger. So I would, I would disagree with that comment about fear always being there. Maybe there's some fear but in this, in this instance, I found that there was love that was, driving the, that was in part driving the anger, other things too, but that, and the love was, oh, I really want this community to be healthy. I really love this community, right? So I'd be with the anger, and I didn't know that. It was the mindfulness told me that there was love connected with my anger, which was incredible to know, right? It was incredible. It wasn't, you know, if I hadn't been doing that mindfulness, I would have just been angry. <laughs> and I would have, you know, probably... At that time, I hadn't done so much judgment work, so I just would have probably solidified judgment and just been generally pissed off for a while, <laughs> you know? And um, so to actually hang out with this and be with it and have the support to do that, it told me that anger wasn't solid. None of these emotions are solid. They all move. That's the secret. You know, you stay with them. They don't stay. We're, we're fearful. Oh, the anger will stay forever. They don't do that. They move. Really incredible. And so I could be with the uh, sadness. And if I stayed with it, at times, it went into love. You know? And that was great to know. You know. And it's great to know for myself or great to know for others. It kind of helps me do the equivalent of what we were doing with that conflict work, which I can have a sense of what's deeper. You know? I know from my own experience, anger isn't the only story. So if I'm with someone who's angry, at something else, or maybe at me, my wisdom would know there's something else there too. So you see how the mindfulness starts going into the wisdom components. You know? Sometimes my anger was like that of an Old Testament prophet. I would sit there on my cushion say, you know, I had a kind of a deep, gruff voice, you, know, you can do what you want, but... If you don't act wisely, cosmic justice will get you. <laughs> That's kind of cute. <laughs> you know, but it felt like that. It felt like I was channeling the, the Jewish prophets. You know? uh, a little bit dangerous to go there too much, but, but, but that's what happened. That was just what, that's just what I was noticing. And probably we, you know, I think maybe in some of us when we went to anger, maybe there was something similar to that. I think that is the energy of the prophets. They're... they're they're touching something which is almost impersonal. And I heard that in the truth mandala from, from a number of people, right? The, that the anger had something like that there. So we inquire, we stay with it. We watch where the emotion moves. We have the patience to just really stay with it, not want to get rid of it. And we see how things change. We start, we, again, I'm kind of bringing in the wisdom dimension. We notice impermanence. We notice how... Uh, things are connected, how the psyche is all interconnected with all these dimensions. We notice the thoughts connected with emotions. We see how it manifests in the body. We study the mind-body relationship. 
You know, all of this from mindfulness and inquiry. The key to doing that is really that last factor of RAIN, which is the non-identification. It's to be able to uh, be with this process without taking it too personally and almost studying it like a scientist does. I mean, it's it's an aspect of our mindfulness practice. We stay with it, we are with it, and at a certain point, we, we can look at it. Non-identification is an aspect of mindfulness that emerges effectively in which uh, we're not dominated by self-constructions. And sometimes we watch the self deconstruct in order to get there. You know? um, sometimes we watch self-image fall apart, which can be scary. You know, for, for me in that anger retreat, I think I had developed the mindfulness enough. It could just really be with what was happening. It could be with it and be willing to hang out and just study this. And I think that maybe that technique of writing the notes down helped in that way. Because I was a little bit like a scientist or a researcher. You know, and I would write down my notes. And then after three or four days, I looked at all my notes and I produced a flow chart of my anger. Incredibly illuminating. It, you know, it was like I should have got a PhD for it, because <laughs> it was it was fascinating. You know, to to study one thing like that. Is it, you know, because I had a lot of notes, and it would be okay. Like, okay, here here's this movement from anger to sadness to love, or it branches out in this way. Here are the six kinds of anger that were emerging. You know, that I could notice. Okay, here's what triggers this. Here's what triggers that. It was really fascinating to study. So there's something. Beautiful from the mindfulness practice, you know, when we stay with it like that, you know. And the key is somehow not not identifying like that. A key really is to follow this process. You know, not to get not to get lost, not to not to get stuck. And really, and I think to have patience, to have the long view, that there's, uh, it takes time. There's, there's, a, there's a line, or there's a poem from Pablo Neruda, which I don't have here, but I, I think I remember it. There is a well in which clarity is imprisoned. We need, we need to sit on the edge of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So that's our practice. You know, and as we cultivate the mindfulness, as I've been mentioning, we also notice the wisdom dimension manifesting we see the impermanence. You know, part of wisdom is to study impermanence a lot. It's a big thing in our practice. So that we know that whatever's happening, it's going to change. That's really helpful. It's either going to get better or more pleasant, it's going to stay the same or it's going to get less pleasant. 
We don't always tell, say that like that. But, but it's, it's impermanent. It's going to move. It's going to change. And we can both know that and we can follow that. We can notice in this whole process what leads to suffering. You know, and the basic um, teaching is that suffering comes when we really grab hold or fixate on something or really get scared by something and say, oh my God. You know, when there's some tightness, when we can't just be <clears throat> with the flow of experience, even if it's difficult. You know, when I'm, when I'm so identified that I don't want the anger to be there or I don't want the fear to be there. And again, we have to remember when we're out of balance, we need to find balance. So one of the most difficult aspects of this practice is being able to distinguish when we can be mindful and when it's too hard to be mindful and when we need to apply antidotes. That's a really critical distinction. I find in retreats, a lot of people are actually stuck and they think they're being mindful. So it's a really, really uh, critical distinction for all of this. And so if we, if we uh, can be mindful, we want to also study when we get stuck or fixated and how that works. Often it's because we don't want what's happening or we want something else. There's some kind of grasping or some kind of pushing away in the experiential flow. And we study that. You know, we study that with these difficult thoughts and emotions. And ultimately, we also see, you know, and I, I came to see with the anger, for example, how in some ways it's an impersonal flow. It's happening because of certain events, my own conditioning, maybe the social conditioning. And we can, um, again, not take it quite so personally. To really, and mindfulness is a training in being able to be with experience in a way which is not uh, fixated, you know, which, is, which, which does not get stuck, which allows experience to move. And that movement, very much the energy or the spirit of the truth mandala, is that when you actually stay with experience and let it move and let it unfold, there's an inherent movement towards awakening. And we've, you know, uh, those of us who've practiced have seen that even in small ways, I think, in ourselves. It's certainly what I've seen. As I'm able to stay with experience, there's a natural opening to our true nature. There's a natural opening to that non-dual true nature that David was talking about. It emerges, you know, I've been talking more about the challenging aspects, again, in my own experience, this goes hand in hand with developing the beautiful states and hanging out more and more. As I mentioned in the, I think in talking about judgments, it's really important that we balance being with difficult states with being with beautiful states and that we know both. So we don't think, oh, oh, all I am are my difficulties. But we come to actually start shifting identity towards these beautiful states, towards the qualities of mindfulness and wisdom, compassion, the good heart, they get more and more prominent, not always in a linear way, but generally speaking. They get more and more prominent. And we also develop trust in that if we really give a space 
for our own unfolding. It unfolds towards awakening. And I've certainly seen that in my own experience. As a teacher, I have that faith. I think it's some of the faith that we use, we use for the truth mandala. We establish a space, we have good intentions, and um, something can emerge from it, something opens. You know, in the context of meditation practice, we stay with it, something opens up, something continues. We, in a way, come more and more to trust in the unfolding of our experience when we're bringing these tools when we're using mindfulness and loving kindness. And I've seen that so, I've seen that over and over again. So that wisdom leads more and more to a kind of equanimity, a kind of balance, more and more with experience. As we practice more and more with challenging experiences and as we work with, could cultivate the beautiful ones. It's like we come more and more to have seen more and more of the basics of human experience. And so we, in a way, to go back to what I said at the beginning, we're not really scared of anything increasingly. Or we're less scared, I should say. Or if we're scared, it's, it's not for as long. You know, that there's something cumulative in which we have uh, more and more trust in the workability of experience. Maybe I'll just finish with a few lines from a poem by Hafiz, Rumi's friend. <laughs> also an Islamic poet, Islamic uh, mystical poet. This is from a poem called Do Not Sink Into Sadness. Joseph, the lost, will return. Jacob should not sink into sadness. Those who sit in the grief house will eventually sit in the garden. Do not sink into sadness. The grieving chest will find honey. Do not let the heart rot. The manic hysterical head will find peace. Do not sink into sadness. If the way the Milky Way revolves ignores your desires for one or two days, do not sink into sadness. (laughs) All turning goes as it will. I say to the bird, as long as spring baptizes the grass, the immense scarlet blossoms will continue to sway over your head. Do not sink into sadness. Let's just sit for a few moments together.
This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Thank you for your kind attention.